Welcome to the Spotlight series presented by Surviving Society. In these episodes, Chantel and Tiso take a step back and hand over hosting to academics, activists and grassroots community organisations. These are a range of episodes positioned locally and globally to tell the stories that need to be heard. Enjoy. Welcome to Surviving Society Spotlight season. My name is Antonia Lucia Dawes and I am an Anglo-Neapolitan writer and academic. In this podcast episode, I will be talking with the Sicilian freelance photographer Mario Badayaka about whiteness in the context of southern Italy. Historically considered a geographical, cultural and political frontier separating Europe from Africa, we will discuss the fraught boundaries of southern Italian whiteness as a particular place from which to think about contemporary racism. We ask what is gained by challenging ideas about whiteness from the edge of Europe. Beyond any regional focus that we might be imbricated in, how does this help us think about the fuzzy contours of racialized constructs? What point can be made about the connections between Europe and the majority world, as Abdu Malik Simone calls it? Who are we? And what might we decide to do for each other from this juncture? So this discussion starts with um, this idea of whiteness as a historical and social construct that was invented to flatten out the uh, ethnic, religious, um, socioeconomic, national, regional, and ideological differences amongst those racialized as white globally. And this is something that um, happened, as we know, for the purposes of furthering white supremacy. This idea of whiteness is something that's increasingly forming an important part of mainstream discussions and debates, both inside and outside of the university, as to how we deal with racism. And of course, these are ideas that have their origins in the critical interventions of writers, including Veron Ware, Toni Morrison, David Rodiger, and Noel Ignatiev and others. I was um, particularly struck recently um, when I was reading What White People Can Do Next, Emma Dabry's most recent book, where she makes the point that better understandings of diversity amongst those racialized as white in different parts of the world is um, important because it represents an opportunity for us to loosen what she calls the death grip of whiteness. And when I was reading this, I really wondered what those of us working on the edge of Europe, in particular, those of us doing this kind of work facing the Mediterranean in southern Italy, might be able to contribute to such discussions. So Mario, perhaps I can start by asking you about the place of whiteness in your body of work and how you relate this to questions of power and struggle against um, racialized oppression. Look, my works, I try to represent migrations by exploring different backgrounds, I started by photographing the Senegalese Murid community in Italy, and then I widened my gaze to the migrants, detention places in Italy, and in particular identifications and expulsion centers. And then I worked along the European borders from Lampedusa to East Europe. Every time I approached the issue of migration to Italy or Europe, I had the clear evidence of how strong racial prejudices towards migrants are and how racist Europe's cultural background could be. Um, For example, uh, a common thread of all my works in relation with whiteness uh, was precisely the violence and exercise of 
European society's power against people coming from specific regions of the world. This white power, which manifests itself in abuses, violence, and human rights violations, is linked to historical racial prejudices disguised as national needs and political reason, such as defense of European borders. Concrete economics or political national motivations are always supported by ideological explanations where uh, whiteness plays a big role. For example, the need to defend and preserve Europe's white Catholic uh, culture. And uh, for a long time, I have been working along the Balkan routes and uh, in countries which uh, represent the European external border. Together with activists and big organizations such as Doctors Without Borders, we have extensively documented the violence perpetrated by the border police in most European countries. In the heart of Europe, migrants are still beaten to such an extent that the police break their legs as a deterrent to prevent them from crossing the borders. Uh, we have witnessed uh, forced marches barefoot in the snow for many kilometers. Uh, migrants uh, surrounded and torn to pieces by trained dogs, uh, women and children living in the wood in very low temperatures. Uh, so concrete political reasons cannot justify fierce daily violence against men, women, and children. Uh, really, the real origin of this violence is a racist, cultural, Eurocentric background and uh, racial prejudices. Thus, what dominates is political opportunism, the idea of white supremacy by politicians who use migration as a main topic for rising their consensus. Um, this approach has its roots in a long historical process started centuries ago. For example, white supremacy is an aftermath of the colonial era. Um, instead, uh, we should understand how migration or diaspora are strictly connected to human evolution. Wow. The account that you've just shared here about things that you've witnessed working along um, uh, the Balkan routes and, and other external borders of Europe are, are really hard to hear. Um, these kind, this kind of exercise of violence for the sake of violence at the borders of Europe you know, speaks very much to the idea of whiteness and particularly whiteness as terror. I mean, I'm thinking here of um, Rodiger's work. So we've got this idea of white identities at the, at the borders of Europe emerging or becoming clear cut through the exercise of power and oppression of migrants. Um, you know, every single image you just evoked here um, has clear historical precedents that are, you know, less than 100 years old. You know, you very uh, astutely trace the kind of political connections back to yourself. Um, and, and these are events that have um, been witnessed on, on some, some of which on the very lands that you're describing, you're doing your own work on. Um, and so I, I wanted to just make space for how, how difficult these images are. For myself, I've always wondered whether this extreme violence uh, and the extreme violence with which these exclusions are carried out are um, rooted in a fear of being on the edge um, and of being sort of possibly indistinguishable or too close to the kinds of the, the other who's being excluded. You know, Bauman called this proteophobia. So this 
uh, a fear of that to which you are the person to whom you are very similar and this is what you know a, an idea that he used to understand what um what happened to uh, jewish people in germany in the, the run-up to um the second world war and run-up to the holocaust you know and it's a way of understanding maybe the excess of these reactions as a way of claiming a more secure identity in relation to a fear of being too similar to they who are being cast out and sacrificed and you know the history of transatlantic slavery like that of the holocaust has taught us that certain manifestations of violence go beyond economic and pragmatic logics there are clearly as you're describing here things that are superfluous to the purported task of securing the border you know they're about dehumanizing they're about creating mass fear they're about putting in place a kind of totalitarianism that keeps those of us at the border in place as well. So you've been talking mostly about the actions of border police and those involved sort of officially in the work of border guarding, um, where my work has um, uh, very much more focused on kind of everyday um, interpersonal um, interactions. Um, in, so in my own research, to turn to that briefly, I, I often noticed this kind of fragile, edgy type of whiteness um, asserting itself in somewhat more subtle ways to what you described. So within the everyday life of the street, whilst I was doing ethnographic work in Naples in um, 2012, um, I was spending time in ethnically heterogeneous street markets around the city's main railway station. And I often noticed competing impulses in white Neapolitans in terms of how they position themselves within diverse spaces. So I would see people explicitly distance self from having anything sort of visually, culturally, aesthetically to do with migrants I remember once a woman coming to look for a suitcase for example to give a banal example she was looking for a suitcase from a street vendor I was spending time with she was offered she was shown a soft hold all a large soft hold all with wheels and said she couldn't possibly buy anything like that because it would make her look like the black West African um, men mostly that she um, saw who were street vendors from Senegal Burkina Faso and Mali predominantly who would carry their wares around in similar looking bags around the city to get to the place where they would sell them. And so she couldn't buy a bag like that because it would make her look like them. You know, in my personal life, I've often been told by Italian family members, I remember more than once being told not to wear long skirts because it wouldn't make me look like a Roma woman, although that's not the language um, that they used, I should point out. And, um, you know, these images are, are, are powerful. They extend beyond the borders of Europe. And, you know, Lord Alan Sugar uh, in the UK tweeted about the Senegalese football team back in 2018. I don't know if people remember this. Um, comparing the Senegalese football team to street vendors that you see along the pavements in Europe and got into a lot of trouble um, with accusations of racism. And so what is this fear of being misrecognized in Neapolitans? You know, I think it's more than the kinds of something somewhat different to the kinds of the mocking accusations of pretense, um, you know, the debates around cultural appropriation or historically accusations around going native or fears around racial intermixture that we are familiar with from the Anglo-American context. There's some kind of deep-rooted fear that actually they are us and we are them in somewhat more complex ways. Um, but on the other hand, I should also say that it was common to hear people embrace connection, commonality. People would in my research, would express this um, through discussions around language a lot of the time. So people would compare the Neapolitan language to the sounds, the intonations and rhythms of Arabic and West African languages. Uh, and this is partly why my book became a book about language use, actually. Although none of this did away with racism, 
And it's why I continue to be um, doubtful about anti-racist tactics based on a kind of similar historic experience of migration or a similar historic experience of prejudice. Wow, thank you, Antonia. Let's talk more about Italian migration then. Um, in some of my work, in particular, my project Italy is Out, that became a book edited with Professor Derek Duncan of University of St. Andrews and published by Liverpool University Press. I have also been interested in understanding the life stories and the sense of belonging of Italians abroad, in particular through the lens of migration and diaspora. And for me, working on Italy's Out was very interesting because after working on migrations to Europe, I had the opportunity to understand the other side of the coin and what the diaspora means and how culture works in this context. Um, at the beginnings, I had not a clear idea of what Italianness was. And then I understood what Donna Gabaccia means when she says that for Italians abroad, their own culture is something always manipulated and the migration status become a life dimension. Everywhere in the places I work, uh, from England to Ethiopia, through the United States, Argentina and Tunisia, um, this life dimension is a common trait. Um, at least Italian culture is a toolbox used by Italians abroad to live and to adapt themselves in a new different social environment. Um, Antonia, uh, please, can you talk a bit about the significance of diaspora and migration in your work in particular, because you are also part of the global Italian diaspora? So I think in terms of my work, ideas about Italian diaspora and migration were significant in a number of ways. So I spent a lot of time with people, I have spent, continue to spend a lot of time with people who are both Italian citizens and non-citizens living in Italy who are involved in anti-racism there. I have often heard this popular refrain um, while, when people were organising on marches, on social media posts, and that was this idea of Italians having been the migrant first. So as opposed to the kind of anti-racist calls from the British context that we know about the we we're here because you were there, that call, this was different. This was more like we were there and now they're here and we know what that feels like. So let's offer solidarity. And this is actually a really significant framing in terms of migrant rights organizing and anti-racism in southern Italy, um, because it ties into a story about southern Italy as a crossroads of people and cultures as somewhere that has seen poverty and suffering and where as a result, people are more welcoming to outsiders than they are in other parts of Europe, um, which I think is an interesting thing to consider as a kind of story that's told about the South and how it feeds into um, organizing there. I think that this kind of evocation of, of having been the migrant first and what that might mean now that Italy is a country of um, uh, immigration as well as emigration still, um, it, it, it says something to us about the deep significance in southern Italy and the deep significance to the southern Italian psyche of mass migration of Italians, of people, that, of those of us that leave the place where we were born. You know, we know that there's a huge global Italian diaspora, although there are divisions, I should note, on whether or not this is, we should call this a diaspora, of course, because the movement of Italian peoples has not been forced in the way that other diasporas have been historically. Um, but this mass migration started in the 19th century. It continues to this day. You know, in the hundred years between um, 
um, unification and um, 1976, um, 25 million are thought to have left. Many left from Naples, from the port there. And the Italians who arrived in the Americas and Australia experienced racism. You know, uh, Christopher Columbus Day was inaugurated at the end of the 19th century in response to a mass lynching of Italians in New Orleans in America. And this created a diplomatic crisis between the United States and Italy. So that's why Christopher Columbus Day exists in America. Laws were also passed that rendered Italian migrants undocumented. You know, that's what the play A View from the Bridge by Arthur Miller is about. It's important that we remember that tens of millions of these migrants returned in the 1930s and many returned in response to calls by the fascist state for Italians to return home to forge an Italian nation together. These people brought back American Christmas traditions, evangelical Christianity an abiding sense of connection to America. And as I saw in some of my research, forms of anti-blackness that are very similar to or the same as US originating racist um, expressions. We know that over the course of this historical period, Italian-Americans gained whiteness and the kinds of legal, economic, political and cultural benefits of full citizenship that are aligned with whiteness. And they gained this at the expense of those who could not um, do so, in particular, uh, black and indigenous Americans. And I think that knowledge returned too. For my part, in terms of my personal uh, trajectories and my biography, you know, I grew up, as you know, I grew up you know, given that I worked with you on the Italy is out project, I was one of the people that you photographed for that project. And, um, you know, you know that I grew up partly embedded within a small Italian community in Cambridge. And this community was partly connected to my mum's village near Naples. And it was partly a kind of cosmopolitan and elite community because of the university in the city. Um, this community probably has not been as significant to me as actually my my real connection to Italy, which has always been the the actual my actual physical relatives, my nonni, my zii, my cugini, my you know my cousins and um, extended family, who have all stayed back home in the village where my mum was born, and you know we we spent maybe a quarter of the year growing up there, um, going there when I was growing up, and I, I speak Italian fluently. And it's these lateral relationships which have been hugely sustaining in my life. Um, and I was really aware that this was unusual in um, um, more unusual in a northern um, European context where the nuclear family was more significant. Um, you know, when I was there in, in the village, in my mum's village, my sister and I were both Lenglesine, the little English girls, as much as we were simultaneously and without it being a problem, the granddaughters of Donna Lucrezia, who was my nonna. And when it came to me coming back to Italy to do research, I was configured occasionally as a returning distant cousin um, for some for others I was a colonialist from northern Europe looking to write about Naples in demeaning and exoticizing ways as has been done many times historically and hopefully I've managed to avoid doing that um, I was also misrecognized as Ukrainian or Polish by those who just saw me hanging around street markets and didn't know what I was doing there you know I don't write about this much in my work um, although I'm asked to speak, I am asked to, um, I've, I've always sort of felt instinctively that it's that I want to resist being pinned down. I also have always felt that the lives and stories of the people that I work with in my or have worked with in my research are more urgent and desperate and important than, than any of this. But I do think that all these classificatory aches and pains regarding my my sort of ambiguous sort of positioning, um, you know, which I haven't experienced as ambiguous or significant in any like anything like the same way growing up in the UK. 
So this, these kinds of ambiguities and these kinds of fraught things do say something significant about how slippery race is as a kind of construct at the borders of Europe. But what about um, if we turn back to considering questions of migration and crisis, you know, these urgent situations I'm talking about in the contemporary and the kinds of um, work that you've been attending to in a big way throughout your um, career. Um, Throughout my research, I was particularly influenced by this idea of Napoli, of Naples being a city on the edge of, of the Mediterranean, on the edge of the sea. And I was conscious, of course, of the kinds of the catastrophe that has been unfolding there as people have made over a number of decades the crossing over into Europe to claim refuge. And it always seemed to me that the kinds of ambivalent and um, interpersonal relationships that people had with each other across boundaries, racialized and ethnic boundaries, um, happened in the shadow of this catastrophe, happened in, 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 yeah, in, in sight of what was happening there and the, the, the kinds of impossibilities of these transverse, uh, horizontal, interpersonal um, encounters in the space of the Mediterranean, in this space of death that has been created out in the sea. And, you know, I said before that I'm interested in language. You know, I was repeatedly told that language was important to understanding everyday interpersonal interactions in, in southern Italy and in Naples. Um, I was interested in, I became really interested in how people spoke to each other, how they negotiate, negotiated unequal power dynamics and how they did this translating in multiple languages. Um, and how, um, you know, both this enabled the people in my research to make a living through um, working as street vendors and eventually to organize politically together, because in the end, a lot of my research participants had to organize um, um, had to organize with members of the anti-racist scene in the city to resist attempts being made by City Hall to close their street markets down. And in the end, it, I, I sort of decided that these kinds of fraught and difficult multilingual communications existed were significant because in the space of the Mediterranean, we have this kind of radical incommunicability. You know, they call um, the crossing over the Mediterranean the new middle passage because it re-evokes the horrors of social death, uh, actual death, you know, that are part of the forced passage and, and internment of the middle passage. And as scholars of this history have shown, language falls away in these kinds of situations. Um, and so I think for my work in particular, the things that have been are happening in the Mediterranean are like a kind of spectral warning of an unfreedom that threatens to engulf us all like a tidal wave, something that we need to resist and undo. And for a long time, I've actually struggled to swim in the Mediterranean. Probably you don't feel this way. Um, you know, I can't forget this story that I was told by somebody who'd made the crossing into Europe where that some parts of the water are so shallow that you can see bags and belongings scattered across the seabed. And for my whole life, actually, being able to swim in view of the volcano of, um, in Naples, Mount Vesuvio, has been a deeply restorative and healing um, return to self for me. So, of course, the sea also signifies connection, flows and beauty as well. And perhaps you can speak to these complexities more clearly through your own work, you know, alongside your work, you know, with Italy is out where you've worked with settled diasporic communities, you know, you've been talking about the work you've done on borders, migration and detention routes, um, you know, frammenti, I'm thinking of letters from the Chie, grooving Lampedusa. So can I ask you what the place of the sea or indeed the ocean, if we think about the Atlantic, is in your work, Mario? Well, uh, the sea plays a big role in my work because uh, it is the main space crossed by migrants. Uh, it is a geographical route crossed by many individuals 
whose stories I collected. Um, this is true both for migrants coming today to Europe uh, from Africa and for the many Italians I met when I worked on Italy's art who moved to other countries uh, country, uh, crossing the Atlantic a long time ago. Uh, the sea takes uh, on a political significance and <clears throat> Also, usually we look at the sea like a geographical uh, border that divides countries, uh, but the sea still has an important and strategic role today. Historically, nations that controlled the sea were able to control all trade routes and uh, were the most powerful. In the modern era, this was, was true for Spain, Portugal, Holland, Britain, and today all powerful nations are uh, engaged in controlling the sea passages and a sea strait. Uh, worldwide, the sea is a huge uh, a dense system of crossed routes. Uh, this means that uh, it is a not an empty space that divides country, but instead it's something that puts the, the world in connection. And um, as far as the Mediterranean is concerned, in the recent era, the Italian's collective imaginary, it has become a kind of wall, a natural border dividing Europe from Africa, Catholics from Muslim or white people from black people. But if we change the perspective, everything seems different. Historically, the Mediterranean is an important bridge between Sicily and North Africa. I am not talking about the Arab's domination of the island or the Mediterranean's role concerning historical trades between Africa and Europe. Uh, I am talking about the Sicilian or Tunisian society, uh, which sees the other shore of the Mediterranean as its natural geographical and cultural extension. Um, for this reason, many people from North Africa moved to live and work in Sicily. And at the same time, many Sicilians are still emigrating to Tunisia. And uh, the Mediterranean uh, represents a natural route between Italy and uh, North Africa. Um, this route is also used by migrants uh, coming from uh, Africa by boat in the last years. Uh, it is the last dangerous uh, passage after the crossing of the desert and the overcoming of many difficulties. Um, the Mediterranean um, represents a natural geographical connection to Italy, but at the same time, a last barrier before they arrive in Italy. Uh, because Mediterranean has been militarized by Europe. Um, the other thing is that we should stop to describe the Mediterranean looking at migrants' passages uh, like mere statistical numbers. Uh, indeed, uh, the Mediterranean is crossed by people who, who are bringing uh, personal life stories and identities, uh, different cultures. Um, for European country, uh, it, it is not possible to stop this process. Uh, we are in front of an epochal event which is changing the European society. Uh, governments should work to adopt uh, equitable policies to help this change. And, uh, by stripping ourselves from a Eurocentric perspective, uh, we can look at migrations across the Mediterranean as historically complex uh, 
political, social, and economic transnational system always on the move. Um, this is what I try to tell with my works, and this is a uh, uh, fil rouge among, uh, among my projects. Um, this is the case of my works such as Grooving Lampedusa, Letter uh, from the CIA, or Fragments, where I try to bring out the subjectivity of migrants uh, landed in Lampedusa through their personal items during their uh, sea voyage. Um, on the other hand, it's, uh, it is the reason why I decided to introduce Italians living in Tunisia or Ethiopia in Italy's out. Uh, more uh, of Sicily instead gave me a chance to deeply explore the historical connections between Sicilian and Arab cultures. Um, it was a commissioned project that I developed for Resignifications Black Portraitus, an exhibit produced by New York University and Tisch School of the Arts, um, when they decided to arrange an exhibit in Palermo. Um, this work helped me to close the circle between uh, the Atlantic Ocean and the Mediterranean Sea. And uh, well, continuing with these geographical questions of our relationship to space and place, uh, and about the way in which your work meditates upon contemporary and historic connections between Africa and Europe. How has this sense of connections helped you to confront problems of essentialization and Eurocentrism? Mm, okay, some of this really um, brings to light the kind of ways in which um, Sicily and Naples are, are different places in these discussions, you know. I've thought a lot about kind of historic, um, the historic ways in which Naples has been compared to Africa by others. So from the 17th to 19th centuries, Naples was an important stopping point for Northern Europeans undertaking the grand tour of Europe. Their travel memoirs are full of really gruesome stories about a city overrun with sex workers and with people whose skin had permanently yellowed from repeated malaria infections. And, you know, these rich travelers had probably either never seen um, or gotten used to the um, extreme poverty that existed in their own hometowns and cities. And I've never forgotten this comment I read um, that was um, written down by a 17th century travel writer. And he, and he wrote, Europe ends at Naples and ends badly. Calabria, Sicily and all the rest belong to Africa. And this is a persistent idea about the Italian South, which I've already sort of pointed towards and which I think creates this sense of connection and refusal in white Neapolitans when confronted with contemporary migration. Um, and this connection of refusal is um, ambiguous and fraught and, you know, it, it appears often in the same individuals. It's a very contingent, uh, sort of quite slippery, dangerous thing. You know, at least in Naples, where my research was situated, there isn't this clear parallel to the kinds of lively and concrete connections that you describe between Sicily and Tunisia that you drew on really creatively for your work on black portraiture, you know. Um, so I, th I think there's sort of kind of important differences there, you know, whilst at the same time, Southern Italians generally within the history of Italian nation building have, have been racially classified um, as being um, in proximity to African people. You know, we have um, ethno the ethnological studies of the 19th century where um, Southern Italian mafiosi come, you know, um, 
people enjoy in, who'd been accused and, and um, convicted of being involved in, in organized crime were dug up and their skulls were measured um, and this purportedly showed a kind of you know um, innate propensity towards criminality in, in southern Italians um, so like, this history is there but I think at least in Naples, it's kind of too ambivalent, painful or, or contingent a place from which to forge a politics of solidarity. I do, however, in Naples, see a sense of connection to Africa through the music scene. I'm thinking particularly of blues artists Pino Daniele, who dedicated a whole album to um, the experience of being Neapolitan, Neapolitanness, and he called this Nero a metà, or half black. We've also got, you know, more recently, Neapolitan dub and reggae group Alma Megretta, they wrote a piece called Figli da Nibale, Hannibal's, Hannibal's Sons, for their album, which they called Migrant Soul. And this song, Hannibal's Sons, makes a claim about African ancestry in the DNA of Southern Italians. And reflecting, you know, again, if we think of some of the neo-melodic music, even, even within this scene in Naples, we've got Ricciardi um, singing um, in Black Heart, We Are All Africans. He sings it in Italian and then he repeats it in Neapolitan. He says, we are all Africans, we are all Africans. We are all Africans, us Neapolitans. So that's that's there as a kind of sense, right? It's there because we've got um, Black American and African um, diasporic traditions which have inspired alternative ways of being that kind of reopen a repressed history or, um, in the city of subordination and, and make connections to contemporary inequalities um, in, um, in, a, in a context of globalized migration and neoliberalism. It's interesting to me that these songs are sung predominantly in Neapolitan or in a Neapolitanized Italian as well, and the kinds of claim around identity that that's, that's being made through that in terms of the kind of decentering of cultural hegemonies in the global north, which, which proposed Naples as, as potentially a site of liberation, a site of transnational liberation. But, but this music, whilst being fascinating um, in terms of what it tells us about his experiences and histories of subordination and marginalization of Neapolitan people who are racialized as white, of course, um, it's intriguing for me to consider how this actually looks like, you know, how what this expresses about what's actually happening on the ground um, and how this idea of commonality and siblinghood with the global south, with the so-called global south, how does it actually play out in a city and, and in a city which since the 1980s has become multicultural as a result of um, uh, migration within a context of really vicious, vicious and increasingly vicious anti-migration, anti-immigration politics. So I guess my question is really, what does this all have to do with anti-racism and the kinds of collective struggle, both for survival and liberation that are at stake currently? Um, maybe, you know, as somebody who knows um, both Naples um, and Sicily and Palermo really well, can you, can you tell me a bit about your thoughts on Southern Italy and particular cities like Napoli and Palermo as anti-racist or anti-fascist in particular ways? How is this configured in the popular culture, anti-racist organizing, and in you know the everyday life in the city? Uh, well, um, I started dealing with migrations uh, about 20 years ago during my study at the University of Naples, L'Orientale, before working as a photographer. And uh, already at the, that time, there were many migrants who lived and worked in Italy, but who were invisible. Uh, the price uh, they paid for staying in Italy and Europe was a strong social vulnerability mm -hmm. and a continuous violation of their fundamental rights. And um, already in that historical period, they suffered from a 
enormous labor exploitation, especially those who worked in the fields. Mm -hmm. And the Italian law in general did not allow them to easily regularize their residence permit. Uh, so they were exploited at work and without uh, rights. And during that time, I wrote my thesis reconstructing the history of the Senegalese community in Naples uh, through nine uh, life stories and analyzing the symbolic and imaginary spaces of the community. And uh, I started with a simple question, namely whether Naples Naples was a, a safety island or a trap for migrants uh, at that time. Mm -hmm. And uh, after four years of research and many kebabs eaten, uh, the answer was finally in between. On one hand, Naples and Southern Italy represent a space where migrants can live more easily on little money uh, or hide if they are considered illegal by the authorities. And also Naples is an important commercial hub and uh, is a city where both migrants and Napolitan can work together as street vendors. And uh, on the other hand, it's difficult to live in Southern Italy because finding work is not easy and the salaries uh, are lower than in other part of Europe and or also there is an illegal exploitation on the farms where many migrants work seasonally in very hard conditions uh, makes things worse and uh, in terms of relations between uh, Italian and migrants uh, I saw episodes of both racism, uh, racism and solidarity uh, more or less the same situation I found in other European cities for example, in the Balkans, I witnessed strong racist episodes against migrants, but I saw also a lot of solidarity with citizens individually or in communities supported migrants in different ways, often breaking laws. I remember during the cold winter of 2016 with temperatures uh, uh, below 20 degrees uh, Celsius, uh, the Serbian government banned any form of aid for migrants stranded in Belgrade. It was even illegal to give them a warm blanket, um, uh, but yet many Serbs brought them supplies of food and clothing and or even hosted them at home. And uh, also I saw that many organizations work along the Balkan routes composed by volunteers coming from different European countries. And this is a beautiful example of a concrete European solidarity and also uh, a symbolical uh, positive idea of what Europe should be. Mm. Thanks for sharing that. I mean, I think you're right, of course, that it's really important that we resist kinds of attempts to romanticize possibilities of um, resistance or, or particularize them on the basis of any kind of idea of the South, uh, as is, uh, you know, a big temptation in, in organizing, as I've seen. And, you know, and ultimately, this is about both the kinds of everyday and extraordinary acts of subordination that, you, that you've been talking about. You know, I think a point needs to be made that um, it falls on those at the edge of Europe to do the hugely visible part of the, the work, um, this, this work, given the way the, the kind of geography of these flows where people arrive in Europe at particular junctures. And, you know, maybe we should make more of the fact that this happens still, regardless of, uh, you know, the terrifying political context. From where I've been situated in the UK, I think for a long time, 
very little attention was being paid to what's happening um, along the migration, uh, the Mediterranean migration routes, um, apart until about 2015, really, when the European migration crisis was officially declared across Europe. Um, and, you know, we know that this happened in the wake of some cat catastrophic losses of life at sea. I remember at the time I was in London, I was being offered condolences as if the sorrow that I was feeling was because they were my relatives who'd been lost or perhaps um, guilt. I was feeling guilty, but I was purported to be feeling guilty because the people that I belong to are the ones responsible for sea rescues or for denying um, uh, refuge. Um, you know, and we're all complicit in this um, and have the capacity to respond to this in particular ways. Um, uh, I guess the difference is whether or not we're looking directly at the tragedy that's unfolding. You know, I'm thinking again here about the voices in anti-racism in southern Italy who ask us to remember that we were once migrants and undocumented ourselves. And of, this doesn't work that well, clearly. It's very much a Eurocentric positioning, apart from everything, anything else. It privileges a kind of paternal or paternalistic ability to give welcome. And it reflects, again, the dominance um, of white um, voices in anti-racism in Italy and across Europe as well. Although, of course, there's a growing movement of uh, Italians of colour very active, particularly in struggles around citizenship, around gaining citizenship rights. Um, and there's some really significant examples of, um, of um, you know, forms of kind of activist cultural production that we, um, that have been emerging recently. I'm thinking that of Daphne Di Cinto, her film Il Moro that just came out and it's had multiple, it's had, um, it's won awards in Italy, which is about, you know, a history of Italian blackness extending back centuries. Um, and, you know, there's, there's, you know, novels by Ijaba Shegos and other, other novelists. I'm thinking also in actually Naples, the journalist Yara Khan um, and, and many others who I haven't named. Um, although I do think that a lot of this isn't happening in the Italian South, um, but is more of a Northern Italian conversation. And, it, you know, a lot of this is to do with the South being so much a place of survival or departure, particularly for young people still. So if it's been argued, you know, racism has been argued to be a scavenger ideology. It's an ideology that adapts and attaches itself to different contexts and historical moments. So we, we also need to be adaptable in terms of our responses and our solutions. And, you know, the call to arms should be about movement, uh, but maybe not the historic movement of Italians, but about facilitating movement and not belonging. So the Southern Mediterranean is a crossroads. It's not a place of settlement for many people. How we talk in Southern Italy about this movement being about a taking and a demanding and an insisting on the right to move, whether or not welcome is forthcoming. The fact of welcome being a particular kind of welcome, whether it exists or not, is sort of irrelevant. So it's not a bestowing, but perhaps we may help make pave the way forward. So if the land belongs to the people, maybe just let us pass kind of thing. Those are my final reflections. Thank you so much for talking with me about these uh, questions today, Mario. Uh, I think it's Thank been a really... Thank you to you, Antonia. Thank you. We will meet again soon. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Spotlight series. If you're interested in hosting an episode, get in touch. <laughs>